minutes. Hopefully this is the last time we do a Zoom uh, video, Zoom uh, worship thing. Uh, we should be able to get back into the Phillips Event Center next week. Part of this was just like us feeling like after this week, it was important for us to worship all together and to see each other's faces and um, just be reminded of the community we have. Um, and so, David, you're asking if I can put it into grid mode? I think you have to do that. I think you put it into gallery mode. Are you, uh, I don't know, anyway. I'm just gonna keep going, man. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, one thing I wanna encourage you, grab a Bible or have it uh, nearby. Genesis chapter, our, our reading this morning is from Genesis chapter nine, but we'll kind of skip around in the story of the flood, Genesis six through nine, if, you, uh, if you'd like to follow along, that sort of thing. Um, and really, this morning, as we enter into Lent, as it's this remarkable moment, there are three things I want to emphasize for us. One is related to like the particular experience of this week and the snowstorm and all that that entailed. And two are related to Lent more generally, the season that we're in. And all three are connected to Genesis 9, to the story of Noah and his flood and God's covenant after the flood in particular. Through Lent, we're going to be looking at the Old Testament passages specifically. Um, next week will be the Ten Commandments, or, or Isaac, the sacrifice of Isaac. It'll be Ten Commandments after that, and in the weeks to come. And the kind of theme that we'll be looking at through these weeks is God's faithfulness, his faithful provision through the wilderness, God's provision in times of lack, in spaces of scarcity. So you can look forward to that. That's going to be kind of like the theme that we're playing with. But this week, like I said, God's covenant with Noah and three things to remember as we set out through this really unusual Lenten season. In our household over the past weeks and months, we have been spending some time with the works of Jane Austen. I wrote about that in the E-News not too long ago. We've been reading some of her stories, updated for kids. We've watched some of the films based on those stories. No miniseries just yet, we're not quite that ambitious. But our kids have been loving these stories. And the character of Emma Woodhouse, not necessarily our particular favorite, has made a huge impression on us. She's not necessarily the favorite, like I said, but she's so human and she's so easy to identify with. Famously, the, the opening lines of Austin's book, Emma, start like this. Emma Woodhouse, handsome, clever, and rich, with a comfortable home and happy disposition, seemed to unite some of the best blessings of existence and had lived nearly 21 years in the world with very little to distress or vex her. That sense of good fortune and even kind of presumed goodness in general permeates Emma's story, Emma's sense of herself. She's the center of her social circle. She's celebrated, she's privileged. And anything she does that's good, like any acts of charity or care for other people, are at least to her and to many around her, like a confirmation of her goodness, of her good virtue, reveal her excellence. And what she does is very, very important to her and to those around her. There's a little bit of performance and a whole lot of presumption to her. They're very identifiable indeed. There's danger in the season of Lent to, there's a danger of the similar kind of presumption around us where we can see our actions, whatever disciplines we might take up as primary, as very, very important, as revealing our good character, confirming our excellence. In a way, Lent can easily become about all that we do for God. Even as we're remembering his journey to the cross, 
we have a sense like I'm gracing God by giving up chocolate or alcohol for these weeks. If there was ever a week to remind us that we're not at the center of things, that was this week, wasn't it? The loss of power, the loss of ready access to water, the fragility of our food supply has left us all shaken and feeling very vulnerable. And the story of the flood described in Genesis 6 through 9 is either perfectly timed or incredibly ill-timed for a moment such as this. We can identify with the sense of things being undone, with the world coming to pieces. Perhaps all too easily, you're like, not today, please, no more of that. The forces of chaos can feel like they've been unleashed in our city, in our homes. What I specifically want to direct our attention to this morning, though, and with what I hope is a timely word, is found in verse 11, chapter 9, verse 11. God's simple promise, never again. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Never again. At some moment this week, you very well may have uttered to yourself, or like me, out loud, who is in charge anyway? Power grid failing, water pressure falling, hospitals evacuated, stores closed or with empty shelves. This week, there's this clear sense of authorities and systems that we rely upon failing in some way. Who is in charge? Never again, says the Lord. The picture of the flood in Genesis 6, 7, and 8 is very much a picture of the forces of chaos, right? The waters being unstopped, released. It's a picture of creation, the world kind of reverting to this more chaotic state that's reflective of the chaos of human sin. The picture is one of God, kind of what God had separated in the beginning in Genesis, the dry land from the seas, the sky from the waters below being undone, the boundaries being removed. Genesis 6-5 describes God as brokenhearted because he saw the wickedness of humanity and that every thought of their hearts was evil continually. Think about that. And through the opening chapters of Genesis, there's this ever-increasing expression of the human will to transgress boundaries. There's murder, there's relationships that break bonds and boundaries. And the flood is depicted in these chapters as the natural, logical conclusion, the only appropriate end to the human desire to live unbounded. It's God's creation reverting to an unbounded state. And this is the point, by God's hand. That's an awful thing. It's horrifying. But what I want to focus on is the presence of God's hand his sovereignty, the fact that he is in charge. And moving forward in light of this promise, the reminder that his sustaining power is what makes creation, our world, our lives possible. This week, we have clearly been reminded of the vulnerability of our place in creation, of the things that we set up and depend upon not being at long last fully trustworthy, but God's sovereignty and his sustaining power are in place and are not threatened. At bedrock, creation, the world, we exist because of God's continued power to sustain life, his continued promise to bless and keep us.
He's promised to persist in sustaining life, sustaining creation. Our lives are sustained by his sovereign power and by his faithful care. This is why if you, perhaps in everything going on, you're like, I, haven't, I don't have a Lenten practice. I don't have a Lenten discipline. Basic suggestion that would be perfectly appropriate every morning of Lent, wake up and say, thank you. Thank you for God's sustaining presence, for the gift of a new day. Each week, we confess that God is creator. That is a reality that extends beyond the moment of creation. The promise we have is not simply that God created all things and then walked away like a half-finished project he'll get to later. That's me. That's tons of that in my garage. The idea is that he sustains and wills creation's good ordering day by day, moment by moment. And the idea is that he, the father of Jesus, with the same character, the same compassion and kindness we love in Jesus, is in the father who is in charge. Don't think so much of an engineer or designer who creates a machine and then walks away. Think of a gardener who clears and plants the field and then lovingly tends and cultivates it attentive to the smallest thing, the square inch of soil, to the, the bud that's shooting up, superintending its flourishing. My favorite moment in this whole episode, Genesis 6 through 9, comes in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, in the midst of the flood, the kind of cosmic scale, all this going on. Genesis 8, 1 reads, but God remembered Noah. He saw him. He remembered him with the intention to care for him. In the midst of all the rolling waves, his eye was fixed on Noah. This week, we have seen how clear, clearly how unreliable the world can be. A fresh reminder, we're not in charge. But we have here this promise of God's attending and consistent care. He sustains us. And that's a promise that is only deepened in Jesus. God entering creation himself, bringing a kingdom that is unshakable, as the writer of Hebrews puts it. The earth will be shaken. All else that we put our trust in may not endure. But God presides in power. And his promise is to stain and order the world we live in, to order your life. As bad as things may get, God is always stronger than the powers of destruction. He will not abandon his creation, and he will not abandon you. Reflecting on the, that Genesis 8, chapter 1, the great German preacher Helmut Ilica wrote this. He said, hold fast to him who dwells above the vastly deep and endless empty space, and yet keeps his eye fixed upon that tiny point where Noah floats upon his ark never forgetting where you and I live our little lives. The start of this incredibly unique Lent, this is one thing I want you to keep in mind. God's sustaining power, his faithful care of you. He keeps and will keep his creation. He keeps and will keep you. Now the second thing I wanna draw your attention to this morning is the one-sided nature of God's promise of the covenant described here in Genesis 9. Covenant language, kind of unusual for us, but the basic idea is that it's a promise made between two parties to fulfill an agreement. And covenants in the ancient Near East in this time involved a ruler and a people group often. 
the ruler promising protection and prosperity, security, and the people promising obedience and taxes and willingness to serve in the army. The book of Deuteronomy is patterned after this kind of covenant, with God as the ruler and the people of Israel the subjects, both with responsibilities, both with kind of things to do to fulfill the agreement. What is so amazing and so very good about the covenant here in Genesis 9 is how it is completely one-sided. God commits himself to Noah, to his descendants, to every living thing, and requires nothing in return. It's a steal of a deal. There's no reciprocal action. God's commitment to creation, to you, without condition. What we have here is this univocal extension of grace, one voice. Genesis 8, 21, after the flood, kind of has a, a reiteration or a, a, a different rendition of this promise. God says there, never again, again, that phrase, never again, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every human, in every inclination of the human heart is evil. That phrase is the same phrase that we read before the flood. Nothing has changed in the human heart, in the human condition. It's not like human beings all of a sudden got better, and so God decided to extend them grace. God is gracious even as the human heart remains riven with sin. Here's an obvious statement. God does not need me to give up anything for Lent. The world is not sustained by my good virtue. My life is not sustained by my good behavior, and neither is yours. And to think otherwise is the height of presumption, because we're not that good. Even our best efforts are hopelessly marred hopelessly falling short. We live, we move, we have our being, as, it says, as the Bible says, by God's grace, by his unreciprocated compassion and sustained care. That's the basis upon which we live. That's the basis of our hope. Nothing else is reliable, certainly not our virtue. In the verses immediately following our reading this morning, in a bizarre story, Noah gets drunk, naked and curses one of his sons for the rest of his life. Whatever else is going on in that crazy episode, it clearly communicates that Noah and his family are not somehow untouched by sin. They're not uniquely unblemished, able to live rightly in a way that no one else is. They're human beings. They have sin in their DNA. And yet God's grace for them, for us, remains. His intention to sustain and bless persists. Whatever Lenten practice you might take on over these weeks is at one level wholly insignificant. God's grace is not contingent upon our good behavior, what we do or do not do over the next few weeks. The fundamental actor in the journey to the cross in Lent is not us, it is Jesus. The primary thing is what God has already done. One of the like, most common passages used for weddings from scripture is Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 7. It reads, many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. It's beautiful. Love will not be drowned. It will endure. But the basis for that hope is not like the beauty of the couple getting married or their good taste or the awesome premarital counseling that they've done. The basis for that hope, for love's endurance, is God's grace, his desire to bless and not curse. Love's sustainability in our relationships in the world is not of our virtue and our excellence. 
left solely to us, love will sink like a stone. But for God's grace, that doesn't mean what we do doesn't matter at all, has no effect. Think of the book of Proverbs and the way scripture commends the way of wisdom, the way of life and peace. And the concluding verses of our reading this morning suggest the importance of what we do and the cost of God-sided grace. A rainbow is hung in the sky. The bow, a weapon of war, an expression of God's judgment. His promise is to hang up the never again. But there is such a cost to this promise. God continues to take human action seriously, to pay us the compliment of taking what we do and don't do seriously. And as anyone who's ever read the Jesus Storybook Bible knows, the rainbow is pointed to the sky. The bow pointed into the very heart of heaven, as Sally Lloyd-Jones beautifully puts it. The expression of God's judgment, the payment of our failure and sin, is paid there. That is how one-sided this agreement is, such that God is willing to pay the price, such that God, such is God's deep love for us. And it's only as this truth of God's grace actually gets into us, transforms and animates us, that we can actually come to walk with him. Prior to the flood, Genesis 6, verses 8 and 9, Noah is described as righteous and walking with God. And we read that and we have the idea of like, well, he was better than everybody else. But immediately prior to the declaration that he's righteous and walks with God, we're told that Noah found favor with the Lord. One Old Testament scholar suggests a better translation is the favor of the Lord found Noah. You see, grace proceeds. Grace makes walking with the Lord a possibility. To use the words of the Psalms, it's only as we look to the hills, to the maker of heaven and earth, for our help and salvation, that we become meaningfully able to walk with him. Everything else is presumption. What does all this, might all this mean for us? Simply this, there is nothing to be done this Lenten season to create more grace for yourself in the heart of God. As though such a thing were even possible. There's no way in the next 50 days to render yourself more lovable or worthy. As though God would look upon you with condemnation, but for the fact that you gave up soda or swearing or fasted on Thursdays at noon. The promise you and I have is that his grace, his one-sided, totally unmerited favor is sufficient for us. As such was his love for creation and for you that he has made a way. So as we enter this season of penitence, of restricting ourselves, good things, do so lightly with a sense of his grace. Do so with a confidence, not in your own virtue and goodness, but in his grace. And as you succeed in carrying out your discipline for this season, rejoice in his favor. And as you stumble and find yourself humbled, maybe eating ice cream at 1030 at night, rest in his grace, in his persistent and sustained intention to bless you. There's nothing else upon which we can rely. And his goodness precedes us through these weeks. His grace is sufficient. So just in closing, there's the third thing, the last thing. And I simply want to answer the question that might be in your mind, which is, well, why would I do anything then? 
why then would I may take on some discipline this season? If practices like this in no way increase grace for me in the heart of God, what are we on about then? I'm so glad you asked. Theologian and writer Kirsten Sanders recently wrote an article about the unseating of pleasure in our lives. She describes how, as a mother, in particular in her case, we are often tempted to think of the hope we have in Jesus as merely an extension of the modern conveniences and pleasures of contemporary life. She specifically reflects, like I said, as a mother, on how we often conceive of the promises of God in heaven in the terms of a family reunion with our children and our parents, something good and beautiful, no doubt. But she suggests that that's not the biblical picture where the image of a temple, where meeting God face to face is the primary hope. And she suggests we must experience an unseating of pleasure as we conceive of pleasure from the center of our lives. To put it in terms we might acutely feel this week, Will there be uninterrupted electricity and indoor plumbing in the new heavens and the new earth? The answer is, I don't know. And the question itself might reveal this misdirected sense of hope. Not that such things are irrelevant or not very, very good, but that they pale in ultimate importance when comparison, in comparison to meeting the promise, to, to compared to the promise of meeting the God who creates and sustains us, who so lavishly extends us grace. Will there be power? Will there be running water? I don't know. But we will see the living God face to face, and our joy will be made full. This unseating of pleasures is one of the primary reasons we fast or discipline ourselves this season. Like Jesus in our reading in Mark, we enter into the wilderness, a place where we can't rely on the normal ordering of life for our delight, our pleasure. We willfully deprive ourselves that we might come into greater contact with God's presence and promise, with his unshakable kingdom. We rid ourselves of distraction and superficial delight so that we could see again God's true role in sustaining our lives, that we could feel the concrete nature of his promise, the promise of his grace, our true foundation. From God's promise here in Genesis 9, never again, Noah, his family, and all, of all living things are able to move forward and flourish from that sure foundation. Jesus, in Mark 1, enters into the wilderness, but only after hearing, this is my beloved son, with whom you I am well pleased. You see, he's confident, he knows, he has a concrete, tangible apprehension of God's loving care and delight. And so he's able to journey into the wilderness, into temptation, into his costly ministry, ultimately in and through death. Because of having heard these words, having come to, into contact with God's love for him, Jesus is able to do this. In the same way, we can enter Lent not proving ourselves or seeking to prove our goodness or God's goodness, but confident in his grace in who he's shown himself to be, in creating and sustaining all things, and what he's done for us on the cross. We enter into the wilderness of your fast, your discipline, knowing that his goodness precedes and ungirds us, undergirds us, that his grace carries the day, and that his favor will find us. We unseat superficial pleasures, 
and come into greater contact with his glory, goodness, and grace. Jane Austen's Emma receives her comeuppance. She fails in her goodness. She's exposed as being in much need of mercy as we all are. And she finds it in 200 year spoiler alert, the care and love of someone who is in her life all along. She finds grace hidden in plain sight. God's sustaining grace, sustaining care, his undeserved grace are often hidden from us behind distraction and superficial pleasure, other things that we think we can rely upon. And as such things are stripped away this season, may God gift you with a clear sense of contact with him, not because of your goodness or ability to follow through, but because of his lavish and one-sided grace. That is my hope. That is my prayer for us. And if we can get uninterrupted electricity and functioning water supply, so much the better. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.